Social media. It's one of the most influential things in the world today. You go to sleep to it and you wake up to it. But have you ever asked the question, how is social media impacting me, my life and my psychology? Well, on today's episode, we had a conversation with Cal Newport to uncover these exact questions. Cal Newport is a professor at Georgetown University, and he's also the New York Times bestselling author of Digital Minimalism and Deep Work. Professor Newport had a lot to say about how social media has impacted our lives, and he studies both sides of the equation, how technology develops as a computer science professor, as well as how it's impacting our society with his academic research. I really think that you will get a lot of value from this episode. If you feel addicted whatsoever to your social media use, to your phone, to your computer, to your television, this is the episode for you to destroy your addiction. Enjoy this conversation, and if you do, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. So Cal, for those that don't already know you, could you give us just a quick overview to yourself and your work? Well, I'm a, I'm a computer science professor uh, at Georgetown, where I study theory. I do algorithms. I do math on chalkboard type of work. I also write, however, books and articles about the impact of the type of technologies I study. So the, the intersection of technology and culture in particular is the beat that is interesting to me. So uh, I've written six books. My more recent books have really been in this topic area. A lot of my writing is also in that topic area. So I I study the science behind technology, and then I like to get into what's the impact of these tools on our culture. Fantastic. Yeah, your, your most recent book, Digital Minimalism, really struck a chord with Joey and I, and many of my friends, actually. I was recommending it to a bunch of my friends at Georgetown, um, and they've received a lot of value from it. So thank you very much for writing something that spoke so much to, I think, what my generation, Joey's generation, really feels that... Uh, and, to, and to kind of quote from your book, humans are not wired to constantly be wired. Um, and I think we feel the repercussions every day of that. And uh, you mentioned that you're a computer science professor, and that's actually the first question that I have for you. Given that you are, some would brand you as almost an anti-social media use person, uh, how do you go about being a computer science professor, but also having this duality as someone who is critical of the technology that you're using? Well, an interesting reality about what I would call internet boosters. So, so people my age or older who are geeks and who were heavily involved in the early days of the internet, right? So I'm one of these people that was on IRC servers and gopher servers, remembered when the first text-based HTML browsers were released. And so I'm from this, this age of early internet boosters. So people in that world, these sort of tech geeks, almost to a person, are very skeptical of social media. And they actually have, they have a huge, and I, I share this, a really a huge division because they see this vision, original vision of the internet as this distributed, distributed, democratized, decentralized network in which anyone could express themselves, you could connect to anyone. It wasn't controlled by a single entity. Social media was basically taking that promise and turning it on its head. It's a small number of companies that were trying to build their own private versions of the internet where they control everything and they can observe everything and they try to get everyone to play in their walled garden. So it's something that often surprises people is that the, the most hardcore technologists, those who have been around for a while looking at this stuff are often the most skeptical 
of those small number of giant social media companies. So we really distinguish in our minds the promise of the social internet and what social media has actually wrought. When do you think that transition happened? Um, you know, yeah. you're, noting, you're noting to like this older era of, of the internet where people kind of promoted creativity to now this sort of like corporate ran entity. When do you think that, that happened? Well, it's exactly the right question to ask because what, what happened is you start to get around this period of 2004 to 2010 it's a period where the, the, the first major social media companies began to attract people off of the decentralized internet and into their services. Their pitch was a very reasonable one, right? This was the era of blogs and you have Facebook come along and say, look, we have two advantages. One, we're easier. Like it's, it's a pain. What do you want to do? You want to get a, a, an ISP account and learn how to hack WordPress. And look, we make it very easy to express yourself. This was what was called the web 2.0 revolution. And they had this network effect offering. You know, everyone you already know is on this network. So you can, you can go see what they posted. They can see what you're posted. The interface will be very easy. So the original pitch of social media was let's take what you're already doing on the internet, expressing yourself, connecting with people, make it easier. Easier interface. Our walled garden is more convenient than the wilds of the World Wide Web. Then you have what I call the great transformation that happened between 2010 and 2012. And I think this is really important because it happened under the radar and it completely changed our relationship with the internet and technology. Two things happened. And this was led by Facebook because Facebook was preparing at this point for their IPO. So they had to get user engagement up so they could hit the numbers they needed to get the stock price offering they wanted on their day of initial offering. They made two changes. One, they broke the original content model which was the profile-based model, which is what's the whole point of social media. I have a profile, you have a profile. I express myself on my profile. You express yourself on your profile. Because I know you, I will come over and check out what you're up to. That was the original model. That was Web 2.0 made easier. They blew it up and said, no, no, we're going to switch to something that no one asked for, which is an algorithmically generated, endlessly scrolling timeline. And so they blew past the original model, which was express yourself and see what the people you know are up to. And instead said, we're just going to give you a, a never ending stream of content selected by statistical machine learning algorithms from all these different feeds, some from people, you know, some from people you don't know, some from news sources, some from advertisers paying for it. And we're going to use statistical algorithms to try to predict what's going to keep you scrolling and consuming endlessly. The second change they made during this period was the like button which was incredibly influential because what happened is you are now going to get every time you logged on the social media, incoming social approval indicators. This didn't exist in original Facebook. This didn't exist in original Twitter. This didn't exist in original Instagram. So now when you post something, if you go back, you're going to get some intermittent reinforcement. Oh, people really like this one. Oh, people really didn't like this one. Oh, people are ignoring this one. And you knew that every time you hit that, icon on your phone, there'd be more information like this for you to see about what other people were thinking about your content. That completely hijacked neural circuitry that had long been baked into our brains and it made it almost irresistible to have to keep going back and check it. So these two innovations, the content becoming this, this sort of hyper palatable, endlessly scroll, statistically generated stream that you could just look at forever, plus intermittent social approval indicators, which just hijacked our paleolithic brain and made it very hard not to keep going back to check, completely transformed our experience with these services. They stopped being what they had been, 
which was like a convenient version of blogs, a way to express yourself and keep up with friends and family, and instead became this weird sort of Medusa monster of I'm looking at this thing all the time. I don't know why. It's making me feel bad. I can't help myself. It's getting in the way of other activities that are more valuable. That all happened in about a two-year period, and it was not driven by the needs of users. It was not driven by advances in technology. It was driven by Facebook's need to get their user engagement up, numbers up to where their investment bankers needed them to be for their public offering. It's remarkably interesting that you say that because I think we're we're ever since that moment, we've seen an acceleration of that type of psychological hacking in social media. In particular, and the one of note that I think of that our generation uses Gen Z is TikTok. Um, and it has gone bananas in terms of circumventing the whole model you discussed in the beginning, what it was originally intended for, uh, at least social media, that is. You are literally seeing people that you have no idea who they are on that app generated by, just like you were saying, algorithms and and all of that, which I find incredibly fascinating. And people are just entertained, and and many of my friends will talk about how they scroll for hours and hours and hours. Um, And, you know, one thing that you noted in the beginning is, is almost this generational difference. And in terms of a proper result uh, or a resolution to this trouble that we're facing, which, which you've very detailed in, in your, your book, Digital Minimalism, I'm wondering how you think digital minimalism would differ based on generations, uh, especially you know what I've noticed with my parents is my dad doesn't even use social media, but even he is in some respects tapped into the culture through there. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak to that. So one thing I did when I was working on that book is I ran this experiment where I had about 1600 people volunteer to go through this process. I call the digital declutter where they took a month. And during that month, they stopped using what I called uh, optional personal technology. So social media, online news, video games, et cetera. They, they stopped using it for a month. Uh, the idea was to, to get back in touch with what you really matters to you and what you enjoy. And then when the month is over, you rebuild your digital life from scratch, but to service to things you care about. That's the idea. There was a huge generational split in terms of people's success with this process. So people who are roughly my age or older, I'm, I'm about to turn 38. Uh, so I'm someone who grew up without any of this. Uh, you know, I arrived at college without a laptop and without a cell phone uh, and left college with a laptop and a cell phone. So uh, this, this transition started happening when I was roughly college age. People my age or older were experienced this declutter as a return to things they used to enjoy. Oh yeah, I forgot how much I used to enjoy reading or, or spending time with friends or joining community groups. Your generation found it to be much more sort of existentially terrifying mm. because there wasn't in, there's no sense memory of like, well, this is a type of thing I used to do when I didn't have hyper palatable digital information sitting there one swipe away because you've, you have had it for, for all of your adult life. And so for people of your age, it was a lot more difficult. In fact, that first couple of days of I can't look at my screen was really unsettling for a lot of people within your demographic because they did not, it wasn't a return to a sense memory they had forgotten. It was brand new territory. What do you think people are so afraid of when they log off? Joey and I have toyed around with week-long, month-long digital detoxes, and you spend a lot of time with yourself. What, what is the internal aspect that, strug- that people struggle with? Well, part of it is just boredom. 
I think we, we underestimate in a previous era how much energy you actually do have to invest to build a structure of useful and diversionary activity in your life. Like we, we used to put a lot of time into this, uh, sort of hobbies and routines and connections with neighbors and community groups. And so if you start from scratch, you don't have any of that in place. And so there's just a boredom problem. What do I do? The other problem is I, I think Gen Z in particular has a solitude deprivation issue which is no comfort with just being alone with your own thoughts. Now, this used to be something that was unavoidable just because you would be in line somewhere, you would be stuck in traffic, you'd be in the classroom waiting for the professor to come in. You just had a lot of downtime and there was really nothing for you to do but be alone with your own thoughts. The smartphone revolution plus the, the social media diversionary revolution made it possible for the first time in history to banish every one of those moments. And if you're not in practice, with spending time with your own thoughts, that can actually be scary. And so that's another thing that was reported back. I, I argue in the book, it's crucial. Actually, time with your own thoughts is how you structure your experience. It's how you actually develop your identity. It's how you make sense of the world around you. It's how you build the scaffolding on which you actually grow yourself as a human and grow your understanding of the world. It's just absolutely functional. We've known this since Aristotle. It's absolutely essential to a thriving, actualized human life. So it is very useful, but if you're not used to it, it's scary at first. You might not like what you hear up there. You might have to confront the thing that you can escape from by looking at the screen, or you might have to just face the difficulty. Maybe I'm not happy where I am. I know I could be doing something more. I would prefer not to have to face that reality. And when you do have to face reality, that could be uncomfortable as well. So it's a, the internal world is a scary world, but it's also the site at which basically all important human development begins. To add on to that, um, you commonly make reference to this sort of value-based approach to social media or internet usage. Though, at least for me personally, I find it difficult to discern um, what is a value versus what is not a value. And I'm sure a bunch of readers um, have felt the same way. In your eyes, how, do, how does the common person um, figure out what actually provides meaning to them? It's a good question because it's not something that's just waiting to be discovered in the sense of, oh, if I just give this five minutes thought, it'll be clear to me that these are the things I value. It's actually a, a, a complex process. In the great myths, it was often presented mythologically as a journey to try to discover these values. In, in the myths, this would actually be captured by the, the actual discovery of a treasure, for example. But, but what was being captured was this, this underlying archetypical truth that uh, there is difficulty and effort involved in figuring out what's at the core of your life and what you really care about. The two activities more pragmatically that seem important is reflection and experimentation. And those are the two things I, I push that if you're going to do this 30-day declutter, the two activities I push for those 30 days is reflection. So again, like we were just talking about you and your thoughts, trying to make sense of what's going on in your life, things that have happened to you, trying to build some structure for your life and experimentation. Well, let me try this. Let me join this. Let me do, let me read this. Let me, let me pursue this. And, and actually through action, there's, there's a lot of discovery that happens. So that's what I recommend is experimentation, reflection, and the realization that this is an, it's a journey. And your goal is to refine, refine your understanding of what's important to you over time, not to have a sort of uh, one size fits all or, or one time only type activity, which is clear what they all are. 
I think one of the remarkable parts of the time that we're living in right now, where we still somewhat live in quarantine, although some places are still opening up, is so many people were so tapped in for so long. And now they're kind of coming out of their house. Um, and they're, there's almost this deep-seated feeling of, why did I spend all of my time on social media? So I think your message is more important now than ever. Is there any recommendation you would have for the kid out there who is still in quarantine, still stuck in their house, to occupy themselves in this time? One thing I would say is be be very wary. I would say be very wary right now of extensive social media interaction mm-hmm. as a primary diversion. Now, I want to be clear. I want to really separate. When I say social media, I mean particularly the major social media services. This is different than the social internet. I think using the social internet, like the ability to FaceTime or Skype with friends or family members, the ability to, to text or chat with, you know, your, your cousin or your brother, uh, the, the, the technology of the internet that allow you to connect with other people you know have never been more important than when we were stuck in our house for quarantine. But let's, let's put that to one side and look instead at, let's say, like Twitter. So an, an actual social media service. I did an interview for GQ early in the quarantine where I said, I think part of the public health response to this quarant- to, the, to the pandemic really should be shutting down Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I sort of stand by that. Now, so why is that? Well, there's, there's a, an important book I would recommend you know, to your audience. It's written by a, a great philosophy of technologist, uh, academic named Neil Postman. Late, he's a lady, died in the, the 1990s, or early 2000s. But he wrote this book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it, uh, ostensibly, it was about television and its impact. But it was actually a much deeper argument. Building from the work of his mentor, Marshall McLuhan, he argued that the dominant form of media in a culture can actually change the way your brain, the way you understand the world, the way your brain operates. Your world can be changed by the dominant form of media. He argues, for example, the reason in part that the scientific revolution followed Gutenberg was not just because the printed book allowed information to spread easier, but actually interacting with long form text changed the way that our brains worked, the way that we thought. It made us, it made us able to do long form thinking, systematic long form thinking. And until we could do that, we couldn't invent science, right? My argument is that social media today is having a really negative warping effect on the way that our brains actually function, especially when you're sort of quarantined and all you're doing is looking at, looking at social media. And I think very relevant, for example, to the, the topic of your podcast, I think the one thing I've seen Twitter do in particular, which is really dangerous, I think, for psychology, is that uh, there's, few, there's few sensations that's more fulfilling in the moment than being confronted with an enemy that is just unambiguously bad. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're facing the, the Bull Connor, or the Pol Pot, the, the just, it's like this is just a bad, obviously bad person. And to be able to sort of push back on someone who is obviously bad, to dunk on someone who's obviously bad, few things kind of in the moment are kind of more addictive or feel better. The hard thing is, is there's only so many examples in the world historically of people who actually fulfill that. But what Twitter has figured out uh, is that, well, you can, the way it kind of shapes our brain is like, okay, here's the rhetorical strategy of Twitter is just take whoever you disagree with and transform them into whatever just the, the, the absolute worst uh, possible 
unambiguously wrong form of them they can be and then dunk on that form, dunk on that straw man. And it's, it's addictively compulsive because now there's Bull Connors everywhere. There's Pol Pots everywhere. And you're constantly able to, to, to dunk on these hard people. Now, of course, this pushes back against millennia of development of the art of rhetoric and understanding the world and argument, which was all about the subtleties of trying to tease out truth from the world. This is what Socrates was about. This is what Plato was about. This is, this is uh, what Aristotle was all about. This is what the dialectical method was all about, the subtlety of trying to understand the world. This is basically a child's version of rhetoric. Uh, okay, here's how we're going to debate. I'm going to replace you with a, a 100% clearly wrong, terrible version of yourself and then just dunk on that, that straw man. There's like a child's version of debate. So that's why, you know, of course, that makes a platform popular because that feels good in the moment. It's very addictive. But what happens when you stew in that hour after hour, day after day, it changes your brain. I mean, I literally think you see the world in a much different way if you spent three months marinating in that. You come out and you see the world. Uh, it's a much darker place. It's, uh, there's terrible people everywhere. Um, you're upset. You're keyed up all the time. It makes almost any type of actual sort of engagement or dialectical pro progress or human connection very, very difficult. And so, so not to go on a bit of a rant, but I, I think this is one of the dangers. Technologies can change the way that we actually perceive the world. And I think Twitter, among some of these other social media technologies, landed on this model that's very compulsive to use, but it's warping people's brains. And so that all comes back to answer your original question, which is if you're stuck in quarantine, I would go back. I wrote an essay very early on in the quarantine called on digital minimalism and pandemics. I said, basically uh, check the news once a day to see what's going on. And that should be it. Mm. Don't go on Twitter. Don't go on CNN.com all day or whatever. Don't just make sure there's, you know, Hey, is, is there something I should know about happening today? Great. And then go on and do much more important things. Uh, in your life. And that's why I make that recommendation. How do you think that polarized nature of uh, 2020 social media uh, platforms like Twitter, how do you think that that's materialized into our day-to-day -day action? Uh, I'm thinking particularly in terms of like, you know, given, given that we live in such a weird time, uh, how do you think Twitter has influenced this sort of stuff which is happening on the streets and the stuff which is happening in higher offices? Well, I mean, I, I, I think, for example, look at the pandemic response. I think it was a, a huge uh, impediment probably to pandemic response because uh, what we ended up with is that so much is mediated through social media, and in particular because I think the, the journalists, for example, and political leaders are much more plugged into these tools than, let's say, the average person. I mean, the, the, the percentage of the population that is active on Twitter is actually pretty small. I've seen some studies from last year that was saying, if you look at the percentage of the U.S. population that is a uh, active political user on Twitter, it's 1% of the population or less. But they really swing above their weight class because the journalists and the political figures and their staffers, who are all coming out of Georgetown and are young and are very plugged in, <laughs> they're really plugged into it. So it has this huge influence on how things happen. And so you see it in the pandemic response, for example, that it, it balkanized real early. So it's a little bit unexpected. Like, is there really political fault lines about uh, coronaviruses and, and public health responses? But that's what was demanded of the platform. The platform demands that of its users, right? So this is Neil Postman. The, the form of the media changes the way that the culture actually operates or the way you perceive the world. So that this medium dictated 
that there has to be terrible people to dunk on. And that's just how the world operates. So people quickly figured out, okay, we got to have teams. We have to be on this side or that side. And suddenly you have something that is, seems like it would be the least political thing possible, which is, you know, the arresting, the, the, the arresting of respiratory, infectious respiratory viruses somehow fell into these really balkanized, uh, highly tribalized camps where everyone's trying to protect their narratives and everyone's trying to battle against the other team and make sure they don't give ground. Makes no sense for that to be the case. Yeah, it's an extraordinary business model just to think about. I mean, it's, and you mentioned this in your book, the, the addictive nature of it is what forces their you know, stock to increase day after day. What type of model could you foresee? Because I think we're living with media forever. And, and what type of social media would you like to see, I guess, is the question. Well, look at podcast. Like, so, so we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording today. Podcasts are not centralized. You, you get these problems once you take a media and you centralize it, and then you have a, a fiduciary responsibility of, to shareholders to make as much money as possible from that media. It's going to use everything available to suck as much value out of its users. And that's why Twitter goes from what it originally was, which was I can kind of express myself with small observations about what I'm doing during the day. It was like micro blogging. It was a way to, it was sort of innovative and sort of an interesting way to kind of keep up with what people are doing and see interesting observations. And it turns into this, uh, this, this political grinding machine that just makes everyone miserable and outraged. Uh, that's what happens when you centralize podcasting is distributed. I mean, you're recording this podcast on your own server. You record on your own machines. You, you have some hosting company that's hosting it for you. If you didn't like them, you could switch to one of 15 others. You own it. People come and get it from whatever platform they want to get it from, whatever podcast viewer they want to do it. Maybe they're just going directly to your RSS feed and just downloading it directly off of your, your hosting services. No one controls podcasting. Mm-hmm. And look at how that's taking off. And look at, look at the difference. Like, there's not an engine in podcasting that's just trying to ex- exploit as much engagement minutes as possible from everyone's brains. And so what do we get? We get long form. We get like your show interesting discussions with interesting different people. It looks nothing like you would see on Twitter. You get science podcast and cooking podcast and, and podcasts on entomology and topics you would never think are interesting that have like loyal followings. Uh, you're, you're finding massive engagement. People will listen for hours on information that really is interesting or expands their, their brains. And so I think that's an example of what happens when you have an internet-based medium that is actually decentralized. That was the original model really interesting, creative, empowering things happen when you have creativity plus the, the flexibility of decentralized networks. And so I think podcasting is a great model. It's a great model of what the social internet can offer and, uh, and how unusual where we are now, this idea that we've tried to centralize it in the three com- com- uh, companies, that's not the standard that we need a big argument to say why we don't need that. They need a big argument for why that should exist because it's so contrary to the entire vision of this medium. This seems to be almost a cautionary tale to the to the Joe Rogans of the world that are now signing deals with the likes of Spotify or whoever else moves into the space to have exclusive uh, media on a particular platform. Does does the move, the recent news of Joe Rogan with a hundred million dollar deal, does that frighten you in any capacity? Does it subvert what you think is so beautiful about podcasting? Yeah, and it's probably more than a hundred million, by the way. That's yeah. What- yeah, that's what I'm hearing from people who know him. Um, it does. I, so there's, a, there's an interesting book. Uh, Tim Wu at Columbia Law School wrote this book. And I'm, 
I, I'm struggling to remember the name. I don't want to say the wrong name, but he wrote a really interesting book about 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, you'll find it if you look at his list of books, it'll be obvious. But he made the case that that's inevitable, that anytime you have a telecommunications innovation, that it's going to inevitably end up centralized and centralized control. And so his thesis would be, yeah, what you're seeing with Rogan is the start probably. It's not just Rogan. It's what Spotify got Gimlet, Spotify got Bill Simmons. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're consolidating. That might be inevitable. And yeah, it's a little sad. I mean, so we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, I, I think what they're, they're trying to offer, like a, hopefully in the end, like a Netflix type model where they have a really nice interface and there's a lot of exclusive content there that's really good. And then yeah. eventually you say, well, why don't I just stay within this app universe? I don't want to deal with these, these other types of apps. So coin flip chance that, that we'll end up consolidating again, which will cause problems. But I do like the state that podcasts are in right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it also brings up to mind that this this business model, I don't think has succeeded very well in the past. If you look to something like Luminary, which has total exclusive content behind a paywall, people are remarkably displeased with it. I believe it has something like a 2.8 you know, star rating on, on Apple's iTunes uh, for their, for their, sorry, not iTunes, but for their app store. Um, so it seems like people get very frustrated by it, which I guess is an encouraging thing. The fear that I have is Spotify is really good. I mean, their algorithms are fantastic. And they have such, and I've noticed this with my own habits. We switched over from using Apple Podcasts for what I usually listen to for all my podcasts and now using Spotify because it directly you know, gives me the things that I'm looking to listen for. It generates playlists just like it generates music. Uh, so, I mean, do you, do you think the algorithmic nature of these platforms needs to be removed or is it just a more, or should it really be centralized on the individual to take the stance of, hey, I recognize that this is trying to, in some sense, coerce me into listening more, watching more? I think probably the latter. I think I think the user is going to have to evolve their understanding of what's possible when a company has this much information on me. I mean, we went through a similar education process in, let's say, the 1960s to the 1980s, where we got a lot more savvy about advertising techniques on television. Because advertisements got smarter. They figured out how to do psychological engagement. So kind of uh, reach out and touch someone in the AT&T ad and you would cry and you didn't, and you just felt like you wanted to be with AT&T. And then we kind of got savvy to that and realized, okay, uh, these ads are kind of manipulative. You need to be a little bit careful. We probably need to go through that with algorithmically generated content based off of harvested data. And I think we have a long way to go uh, before we actually get to that point of savviness. I have not seen a feasible proposal for how you can legislate that out of existence. There has been some attempts. I know like Senator, Senator Joseph, um, Josh Hawley, I believe, he's, has been trying to propose some legislation that would actually get at some of the addictive natures and algorithmic natures of media, but I think it's too slippery. I don't know how you legislate that. I mean, what is an algorithm? What does it mean to be optimized? I, I don't know if that's going to work, which is why I've been pretty relentlessly user-focused, mm-hmm. which actually puts me at odds with a lot of uh, other people in the space. I mean, I would say this, is, this was one of the, the big fights I got in from, let's say, the national media core when I was promoting digital minimalism. So this was, you know, pushback from the New York Times Book Review, pushback from the New Yorker, uh, uh, both of which are places I write. So I don't want to actually push back these publications. This was just, uh, it's legitimate critique. But there is this real pushback of why aren't you dealing with uh, 
more systemic solutions about what we can do to the companies and what we can legislate. You know, because I, I think that's often the orientation of policymakers and the journalists who cover them is what's the big swing Georgetown style, clever piece of legislation that we can launch. And I come at it from another way because I, I, I don't see a lot of that's going to make a big difference, but I do see social movement can make massive difference in terms of people's engagement with this. So I often come at it from what can the user do to reform their relationship with these tools? Because I'm yet to see a lot of really compelling options as much as, as much as some might want those to exist. There's not necessarily a ton of compelling options where we can solve this by just forcing the companies to be what we want them to be. That usually doesn't work out well. It's not how we dealt with tobacco. We didn't try to legislate cigarettes to no longer be addictive. We instead educated the public that, hey, you probably shouldn't be smoking cigarettes and kids aren't allowed to have them and you can't advertise them on TV. And beyond that, caveat immature. And that probably was the better strategy. Mm. I think one of the interesting notes there is you kind of have to hit them where it hurts. And, And that decentralized approach, just like you were mentioning with podcasting, I think is also true with polarization. Uh, to go on a, a bit of a tangent, I don't think that we can resolve the issues that we are facing, which, by the way, I think is very intertwined with social media and the algorithmic nature of it, that forces people on the opposing side, uh, very polarizing in nature, further and further away from each other. And as our Overton window continues to shift in various different directions, I think we'll see it shift more and more given this inherent nature of, hey, whatever is most polarizing is the thing that we will engage with on social. It is also the thing that grabs our attention when we're watching the news. And so far as people are getting that information from there, I don't think someone's going to magically create a solution in a systemic way. And authors like Ezra Klein, uh, who recently published a book, Why We're Polarized, kind of speaks to that he's like there's common sense things that we can do getting rid of the filibuster uh changing how the supreme court functions things that of course are still up for debate but in terms of making a real change not just from the top down there i I do agree that that bottom up approach is almost even more necessary and to that note it's it's more empowering for the end user you know it's 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 somewhat ironic how much social media has influenced our, our lives. I, I remember listening to a podcast um, by Jay Shetty and he said, you know, when you go on your phone, you're allowing thousands of people to enter your room in the morning, um, in the morning yeah. by the first second that you wake up. Uh, I'm curious on your end, do you think that there's an age where that sort of presence of social influence shouldn't be in your life? Should there be age restrictions to those sorts of um, accessibilities? I mean, I get... I get in trouble for this, but honestly, I think 18. Really? I think when you go to college, so uh, Joey is not looking happily <laughs> at me right now. <laughs> Joey's probably don't like this at all. Maybe 17. How old? I'm 17. Uh, hey, you cut him off. I'll be better off for it. I'll be better off for it. 16 and a half. 16 and a half then. Um, roughly, I honestly think, look, we, we set the cigarette age like we did. In, in part because we know there's massive neural development that happens during the adolescent year that among other things made the influence of powerful neurotropics like nicotine pronounced. And so this is why if you started smoking at, at 15, you could, you could get a much stronger addiction than maybe if you started smoking at uh, 25. So they, they put in the limited 18. I think it's so powerful and it, it's playing with psychology and psychological vulnerability so powerfully, these social media platforms, that when you combine that with adolescence, uh, it's a really volatile, it's a really volatile mixture. 
you know, and, and I think we, I think we see this. There's a lot of troubling data about this, uh, especially in teenage girls, social media use in particular is really strongly correlated with the rapid rise in anxiety and anxiety related disorders that has, has really picked up roughly around the time social media use among teenagers hit roughly 50%. Once about the time that became a, a normal thing, you get a ski slope of a rise in these conditions. I think it's part, it's just a, it's a mismatch. It's, it's a very hard age to be exposing to things that are so manipulative. And I think we're just starting to learn that. I also think from the polarization angle, the degree to which, that's why I think Postman's analysis is so important. The degree to which the way you understand the world can be influenced by the tools you use, it's really important to understand that because otherwise it just seems like self-evident. The way you encounter, you use Twitter all the time. It's just self-evident that there's all these terrible people in the world. You're on a crusade. It's giving you meaning. You're on a crusade against these terrible, uh, you're on this crusade against these terrible people. The world is sort of dark and fractured and, and you're trying to, you're, you're, you know, it's St. George against the dragon trying to fight, trying to fight the good fight. And it feels, it feels really good. And then what happens is you start to see the world in terms of narratives and what's our narrative. And we can't give ground to the other team's narrative. And you've gotten rid of about 3000 years worth of human intellectual development, starting with the, the back to the very, to the ancients about how do we actually encounter the world and each other and try to get the truth. The whole thing is thrown out. The degree to which that's influenced by these tools is important to understand because then suddenly you realize, you know, the way I see this world and this instinct I have that I have to dunk on terrible people and that I have to protect my narrative and I can't give ground to these people. And, and that sense of urgency, when you realize that a lot of it is constructed and unintentionally constructed, it's just a side effect of, of interactions with tools. It suddenly becomes easier to say, well, maybe there's another way to go about life. Maybe there's another way to think about the world. Maybe there's another way to engage with people in the world of ideas. And when people step out of that social media world and begin approaching the world, let's say with actual community involvement, like mm. dealing with real people in their own town on issues where they actually have an influence as opposed to being on a Twitter chain where it was started by a famous person, but you're not really talking to the famous people. You're just yelling at other people, yelling at the famous people. And, and it's this sort of simulacrum of, of political engagement, but really it's just, you're in the, the Twitter salt mines, putting in your shift so that Jack Dorsey can you know, make another hundred million dollars that year. When you actually leave that behind and start from first principles, read hard books, the political philosophy, start using the dialectical method, man, I really want to, I'm going to dive deep on what this guy who's on the other teams, the smartest people that he had, that team has, let me read that book. And then let me let that clash against the, what I think. And then in that clash, this is Socrates in that clash forward progress and understanding occurs and it's unavoidable. You have to clash the sort of the, the ideas together and in that collision progress and thinking happens. Let me actually engage with real people. Let me get involved in political engagement where I can actually see my involvement made manifest. Mm. You know, this was an issue in my town with, the, with this thing and this thing is better. These are the people, we work together, this is better. Real people I know's lives are better. Force yourself to actually stand side by side from people from different experiences with different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. Be confronted with that, to merge with that, to find what you like and don't like. I mean, all of this is, is, is an alternative approach to citizenship and political life that can be incredibly enriching. Aristotle said we were a political animal, that he's saying we were wired for this. When you realize like all this is possible, and this dark fractured world when it's my team trying to defend my narrative against that team and we have our media and they have their media, that's just basically a side effect of a profit making tool. 
it's much easier to leave that world and go to the better world. So I, I, I keep going back and I, I apologizing for preaching. <laughs> no, that's totally lot. all right. But I think it's just really important because otherwise it's like the fish that doesn't know what water is, right? David Foster Wallace's Kenyan commencement yep. address, you know, to the yep. fish doesn't know what water is. He's only been surrounding it. If you've grown up with social media, your brain has been marinating it. It's the way the world seems to be. And it's like, well, let's just burn it down because the Nazis are at the door, you know? Mm. And you don't realize the degree to which that is actually affected by this little glowing piece of glass that you've been trained to carry around and look at all the time because there's these investors out in California who really wanted a hundred X return because you know what? They only have three houses in Napa and they need a fourth. You start connecting those dots. It opens up a lot more possibilities for a more flourishing life. In that vein of thought, uh, another philosopher comes to not to mind Levinas and, and his construction or his identification of identity and, and how it's developed is, is it's constructed against the other. And I think we're seeing a hyper emphasized nature to that identity construction. Now, every, it seems like everything is political. You, it, just like you were mentioning, how can a pandemic that is, has no political affiliation whatsoever be distorted for the purposes of political gain? How can people, and, and we're noticing this now, and, and I'd love to dive a little bit into that given the, activism we're seeing. I think that there's a, there might be a case to make that social media is spurring a lot of activism, especially regarding the Black Lives Matter movement. How do you go about balancing the dissemination of information, which I think undoubtedly is has been increased as a result of these media, with the need to still be a, a minimalist in some sense and, and, you know, not get overwhelmed by all the information you're placing back into your brain. Yeah. Well, so I, I think there's there's two value propositions that social media platforms like Instagram, like Twitter have that are good value propositions. They, they've borne out to be net net positive in people's lives. And that's the the informational and the inspirational. So as you're saying, let's say there's a a, a protest march about something you care about being organized in your town. Twitter can be a very efficient method for finding out it's at five o'clock or for gathering, you know, starting a, a march that no one was thinking about. Uh, we also should not underestimate the power of uh, inspirational social media. I used, to, uh, I used to put this down, but I've learned in sort of my travels and dealing with people that there's something very powerful. If there's a particular change you're trying to make in your life, if you can be exposed to other people who have made the change and have been successful at it and are an exemplar of what you're trying to do, that's actually incredibly important. I mean, if you're trying to get in shape it turns out the things I used to mock on Instagram of like, why are all these guys shirtless on Instagram? Like, what is this? That Actually, would be that Joey. Could, yeah. <laughs> why, why is Joey always shirtless on Instagram? <laughs> It turns out Joey is actually helping a lot of us, you know, have the, there, there's actually something that's a good hijacking of the brain. It's like, okay, I see this. There, there's this Navy SEAL, Jocko Wilnick, yeah. who's, yep. yeah. So his only Twitter feed, from what I understand, is just pictures of his watch every morning at 4.30. He takes a picture of his watch at 4.30. That's incredible. That's, that's when he gets up to exercise. So I think the, ins the informational and the inspirational are actual value propositions that these platforms brought that are useful. So I had someone on my, my was asking on my podcast recently. Like I'm miserable marinating social media, but I have these uses. And my advice was like, well, just create a dummy account, mm. create a new account where you never say anything, not associated with you. You can use that account to follow inspirational things and you can use it to find information about things. And then I further suggested treat it like a TV show you really like. It's on 
Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 8 to 8.45. And during those times, load it up on your computer, don't have it on your phone, and go on there and you expose yourself to like what's going on. Let me look at the information. Let me look at the inspiration. You get 99% of that value, but without any of the other performative aspects of social media that, that sucks you in and then has that brain warping aspect. So uh, that's, my, that's my hardware advice. If you feel, if you're fed up with what's happening to your brain, but you know there's these uh, either inspirational informational value, just create a new account. No one's ever going to give you a like. No one's ever going to get mad at you. No one's ever going to give you an applause emoji. No one's going to even know that it's associated with you, but it does allow you to gain access to that and then look at it by appointment. I mean, to me, you're taking the cost benefit ratio of social media. And if you do that, you're putting it dramatically back into your favor. I, I, you noted it's something before, which I want to dig a little bit deeper into. You said go on your computer as opposed to go on your phone. What's the difference for, for those who aren't aware of that? Social media on your phone, I mean, it's just a jobs program for social media companies. Like if you own a lot of stock in one of these companies, then you should put social media apps on your phone. It's the <laughs> only, only possible purpose why you would have it on your phone. Uh, it, 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 it's on, that's what vastly increased their profitability because the, the, you have the, the, the lever for the slot machine in your hand. And anytime you can hit this and either get information about what people are seeing about you or see information selected from an algorithm that's going to touch, you know, touch a button uh, that gets you excited. If it's in your phone, you're going to use it all the time. None of the serious value propositions of social media, the stuff people come back to, like the informational or the inspirational, none of those require on-demand ad hoc access. You can get all of those benefits on a laptop that you look at at eight o'clock a couple days a week. So it's like one of the most power, the, the social media companies hate this, by the way, <laughs> they do not want you to tranche out value propositions from their service. They have an ecosystem model. They want you to have something that's valuable to you. Let that be the reason why you use the service and then have you do no thinking about how you use it. They want to bring you into the ecosystem and then keep you in there for 50 to 90 minutes a day doing whatever else. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, take it off your phone, hundred percent off your phone, unless again, you have large stock holdings in Facebook or Alphabet, in which case, you know, you're, maybe you're, you're, you're helping yourself in the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think anonymity comes into play mm. uh, for social media usage? Would, would that change the profile itself or would that um, keep, keep the levels of engagement and sort of neurological changes which we're seeing constant or if not exacerbate its effects? I don't think it's going to help. I mean, it's just choose your poison. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have a world like Twitter, uh, it's pseudo anonymous, but like roughly it's typically real people because people actually, uh, they want you to know who they are because they want the, the plaudits. And we have the problem we talked about where uh, the whole game is transforming people into monsters and then dunking on them. And it's just, you can't help it and your whole world gets warped. But you look in the anonymous platforms and what happens there, it just evolves into, uh, what happens there is you get into a different type of base id you know, dark humanness, right? Yeah. So, so in Twitter where you're pseudonymous and mainly actually just non-anonymous, what happens is, is we fall into this, the, the, the childlike rhetoric, the rhetoric strategy of the three-year-old. Uh, I don't want to argue you. I want you to be terrible and then just dunk. Ah, oh, you're so terrible. Uh, so you get that. You go completely anonymous. You get, uh, you get the sort of weird racist troll culture of trying to one-up each other. You get 4chan. Yeah. Let's all try to one up each other with who can say like that. It's just, it, it, so either way you're going to a, a not very good representation of human potential. It's just a different, not good thing. I think it brings up an interesting point with the, with 
regards to anonymity, um, especially because I think it brings up also a deeper question of free speech and what that looks like online, especially given right now what we're seeing with Twitter coming under fire from the Trump administration for quote unquote censoring, although the censorship wasn't necessarily what I would consider censorship. Do you have any hot takes, so to speak, of any level of censorship you would like to see on social media? So I tend to come at it from a different angle. So on the whole, like 230 debate, et cetera, where I differ, my foundation is different than a lot of technocritics mm-hmm. that are dealing with this issue because most of the technocritics dealing with this issue are coming from a foundation in which this is unquestionably, these platforms are unquestionably central to their existence and the existence of the Republic. And so there's this huge urgency of then how do we get this public square functioning just right? Maybe we can somehow legislate it to function just right. Humanist technocritics like me or Jaron Lanier, we come at it from another point of view, which is like, they shouldn't be fundamental to our experience, to our Republic. These are, these are exploitative companies. The solution is not to try to legislate these companies into being exactly what the right thing is because we'll never succeed. The solution is to stop taking these companies so seriously. And so I tend to come at it differently. It's just like what I was saying about tobacco before. We didn't deal with cigarette issues by saying, can we legislate what cigarettes are made out of until we can get them into something that is, you know, less addictive or less dangerous. We instead try to change the culture so that the idea that you smoked became like a lot less acceptable and just a lot less people did it. And so that's the way I come at it. Um, I think we're going to run in circles yeah. trying to, trying to solve it, it. It's, I mean, this was the worst thing that happened to the social media companies. This is like an important inflection point. I noticed in my own work that right around the Donald Trump election is where uh, there was a huge shift in the public perception of social media. So the, the week of his election, this is the turning point, as far as I can tell. Like the week of his election, I had an op-ed in the New York Times that said something negative about social media. This was at a point before this transformation. So that article got me in a lot of trouble. The, the New York Times got so much complaints about it that they had to commission a response op-ed that said, basically, don't listen to that last op-ed. That's not right. There was a concern that I was tricking people. I would trick people and then thinking the wrong things about social media. So we were in this moment, even up until... November of 2016, where the standard storyline is that these tools are actually central, you know, they're central to our, to our existence, to our Republic, to to what have you. Uh, Within like six months, that reaction completely shifted. I've written subsequent op-eds for the New York Times that say negative things about social media, no negative backlash, right? So there was this anti-social media backlash that kind of popped up. And I think what happened, it was like the worst case scenario for social media companies in some sense was um, they found a way to annoy the left and the right. Mm. different ways, but they, they annoyed the right because of, of censorship concerns and they annoyed the left because uh, uh, Donald Trump used Facebook. Yeah. And I think that was foundational in our culture's relationship to these tools because once you had one reason to be mad at social media, it changed the way that you categorize it in your brain and it shifted it over from this box that said, this is great technology that we're exuberant about over to this box of, ooh, I'm not so sure about it. And I think once it got dislodged, so we started thinking of something that could have problems, we began to notice a lot more problems. So um, I, I think the shift happened right around 2016. I think politics played a big role not because the political issues are why everyone's upset at social media, but it taught people that you could be upset at social media. And with that change, it's been a, a massive change in how we see it. We see it with a lot more skepticism. So 
I think it's completely reasonable to imagine a future where I hope the moment of these tools having such dominance will actually have been passed. Mm. I think it's a really interesting point, actually, and, and very insightful, given the respect of, of you as a writer uh, and, and the reaction that you receive. I think we've also somewhat noticed it in, in terms of when we've spoken in the past about our an antagonistic nature with social media, or at least being critical. One, one aspect that I want to dive a little bit deeper is the foundational nature to to what you discuss in in being humanistic, uh, especially as it relates to the independence of culture from other systems potentially. I think, I or I at least I assume that that we would agree that culture is influenced by systems as well as culture can influence those systems. So it's almost a, a dual nature to it. But what happens when, and I think we've noticed this already, corporate interests play a massive arm in it, especially from the legislation side. So what, like, what do you have, like, what's an example you have in mind? So when you're thinking about like a, a legislative nudge yeah. to our cultural systems, like what's, what's a good canonical example? I, th I think a great example is actually what you brought up before with, uh, with cigarettes. Um, I think that there was a massive corporate push from those companies um, for for nicotine and and the likes to not only fund research that distorted our assumptions as to what it actually does, but on top of that, lobby our politicians to ensure that they would not uh, legislate in in any capacity to restrict them. And I think a similar thing is also occurring now with social media companies and how they fund lobbyists, as well yeah. as a variety of other you know corporate interests. Well, so, you know, here's, here's a hot take on that, that I don't know if this is true. So I'm going to, I'm going to present this as a, as a hypothesis, but sure. of the type of influence that might be going on right now, I'm 50% convinced that Facebook actually amplified or embraced at first the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Interesting. Because if we go back and look at the context, what was happening right before the Cambridge Analytica scandal, what was happening is they were starting to get whistleblowers who were coming out. So Sean Parker, Tristan Harris, uh, and a few others, uh, really high level people coming out and saying the type of things I talk about. These are engineered to be addictive. These services are exploiting you. They're exploiting your humanity. This is a terrible storyline for the social media companies. Because there's no fix to that that doesn't threaten their very existence. Their very existence requires their services to be exploitatively addictive. And so this was a real challenge. Tristan Harris going on 60 Minutes, talking to Anderson Cooper, holding up a smartphone and saying, this thing is a slot machine in your pocket. It's terrifying if you're Mark Zuckerberg because mm. there's nothing you can do about it. You can't say, okay, look, look, we're going to make our services less appealing. We're going to make them less addictive. We're going to get you to use them less. That's direct revenue loss. And I think they maybe saw an opportunity in Cambridge Analytica because, hey, privacy concerns, we can do something about that. We can, we can say, yeah, no, it's politics, right? Like, look, yeah, we were exploited, but you know what? We're going to, um, and remember how they, they portrayed Cambridge Analytica at first was they, they used this language that made it seem like there was a great hack, right? They made it seem like somehow they were hacked by this company or something. They weren't hacked, actually. This company was using Facebook uh, in the way their, their terms of service actually allowed. The actual only illegal thing that maybe happened is that they were using, that, that when Facebook updated their terms of service, Cambridge Analytica was a little slow to change it, but they were actually, uh, they were, the way they were exploiting people's data was part of Facebook's data uh, their model. But I think Facebook saw that as something they could, they could, they could make it a, a thing about and, and, and a mea culpa and solve. 
without hurting their bottom line too much. They can't make Facebook less addictive because then you lose a lot of money. But you can do, you know, privacy controls or this or that and, and, and put that in place and end in encryption or whatever. You can kind of solve those privacy problems without hurting your underlying business model. So like, I think that's an example where they, they jumped on it. And suddenly this company, which, hey, what they were doing, there was lots of companies doing this with Facebook data. It's what Facebook basically wanted you to do. It's how they made their money. They made it seem like these were Bond villains who were in a hollowed out volcano that used their you know, super secret laser moles to dig into the Facebook vault and steal all this data and that, and that Donald Trump was there, you know, like Dr. Evil with a cat, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, sending out these moles or something like that, right? Because I think they saw that was a preferable storyline. That's something we can solve. It blew up in their face though because it, then it threw them into the world of, of polarization and, and, and then everyone hated them for both sides of the political aisle and ended up maybe not being a great move. But I think it's an example of what you're talking about is they were trying to shift the conversation. We wanna have a conversation about data security and privacy, not about this being addictive or exploitative because we can fix the latter. The former is the core of our profitability. Mm. That's such a, a very profound statement. Uh, I. I really think that there are going to be a lot of documentaries, uh, a lot of books written tens, twenty, you know, ten, twenty years down the line that expose the inner truth of a lot of this. Especially, and this brings me to another point of conversation, more of a question of how you feel about the future with the advent of virtual reality. Um, I, I, I'm currently reading Ready Player One, rereading it, and it's very interesting to see yeah. how how much that's been tracked. So do you have any, any words to the future? Uh, let's say someone's listening to this 10, 20 years down the line where they are in a pl Ready Player One world. Um, to, do you have cautionary tales for them? Well, I think we're in that world now, yeah. mm. right? I mean, I think this is what, this is what uh, Ernst Klein got wrong. He was imagining, oh, what would we want to do to escape hard times? We would want to put ourselves into worlds that were very interesting and entertaining. We'd want to go to cool places and be able to jump motorcycles off of cliffs and, and have ninja swords and be around awesome people and go to these nightclubs. But the Twitter said, eh, that's too complicated. Let's go right to the base of the brainstem. What do people really want? They want the chemical yeah. that makes you feel engaged or good in the moment. You can get that by having a ninja sword and jumping over the motorcycle thing and going on a quest in a virtual world. But you can also get it by uh, looking at this thing and be like, ah, there's this terrible person and boom, I dunked on them and oh no, they're coming back at me. And you can, they just got to the brainstem. It turned out to be much, much simpler. You didn't need tactile gloves and high resolution laser VR cameras shining images straight to your retina. You could do it on a, on a four by two inch smartphone screen if you just put the right content on there to hit those same chemical buttons. So I think we went to, and by we, again, I think this is a, a smaller percentage of the population, but they just hit above their weight class. It's just so influential on the way that, that political leaders and journalists operate. Um, but for this class, they went to a Ready Player One world. Yeah. But it was a world where they weren't jumping motorcycles. They were, they were fighting, uh, depending on where they were on the spectrum, they were either fighting Bull Connor or Pol Pot. Right. So like terrible far right or terrible far left figure, but they're out there fighting wars. They're just doing it with text. Got to the same place. It turned out to be a lot cheaper to do than Ernst Klein thought was needed. Mm -hmm. So if you were to sit down with, if you had the opportunity at least um, to sit down with one of these top executives, take, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, 
let's say they're sold on the idea for digital minimalism. Uh, I don't know why they would be because it would be hurting their pockets, but let's just say uh, they, were, they were willing to have that sort of conversation. Is there any form of advice which you would uh, give to them in order to benefit people's usage on their platforms to make it better for the common good of humanity? It's a complicated question. Like almost everything that could be effective would hurt the bottom line. I, I mean, so Twitter is an interesting example because more so than the other companies, their negative impact and addictiveness is partially accidental. Now they still do attention engineering, especially in their app. They, they innovated the, the poll to refresh. There, there's no reason the poll to refresh. They, they had the technology just to do infinite scroll, but there was a sort of reinforcement aspect to that. It's like pulling the slot machine handle. You pull mm-hmm. it and it sees what happened. And so they have done some of that, but they were actually surprised the degree to which once you added retweets and likes, how it became this sort of social feedback machine and then culture took over and it spun people off into these, these, these weird directions. So Jack Dorsey's willing to entertain experimentations. He's thought about like, let's get rid of like buttons. Um, let's get rid of favorites. Let's just try to have things just kind of, go out there, but there's no battle around them. That might help. I think Facebook and Instagram, I mean, they really depend on people using it compulsively. So I don't, I don't really know what they can do. I I wrote an article for the New Yorker last year where I looked into independent social media platforms. And so there are indie alternatives where there isn't a large company, you, you own your own server or it's you and a few people own the server and they talk to other servers. It's all independent and no one's trying to exploit you, but they're complicated. So, you know, I'm, I'm, not, quite, I'm not quite sure if that's an alternative. Mm-hmm. So I just think the solution has to be not Facebook or Instagram or Twitter performing themselves. I think it's the culture moving on from them and embracing a greater diversity of different social platforms and social internet tools. And so like one, one term I coined is long-term social media or, or long tail social media, I should say, which is this idea of uh, instead of having a giant platform that everyone is on, you have a, a, a multiplicity of platforms dedicated to different things with different models with, with some of them you pay for. And uh, you're, you're engaged in, in these very intense and rewarding platforms. And maybe this one's a hundred people or here's 5,000 people who are into this. And they're, so it's long tail. So it's niche and that it gets us back to the social internet roots. And I think why this is possible is that that original network effect sales pitch, you have to use us and not a competitor because everyone's on us. That kind of went out the window once they moved the content model away from profiles to just the endless stream. Once you're just looking at an endless stream that's being populated from random accounts, it doesn't really matter that your cousin's on Facebook or not. Mm-hmm. So you might as well go to a, a, a niche platform that like uh, ha- people have really strong relationships. And I've been documenting these while I've been writing about these where it's like, you know, the people you're making each other's lives better. It's experts. Maybe you pay $5. Um, it's the interfaces are great. It, you, it, you do in-person meetups of the people. It's like way more rewarding. I'm hoping that's the future. Long tail social media, distributed, independent, numerous different types of platforms and models. No reason to be on two or three where everyone is. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think the closest I could see to that in its manifestation currently. And there are some platforms that are trying to, I think, follow in those footsteps. I can't remember the exact name, but Facebook groups remind me a lot of that. Uh, and, and Joey and I have toyed around with that for the purpose of, you know, we're, we're young creatives trying to connect with other creatives. One of our business ideas, so to speak, was in that vein of thought, how do you connect people both online and offline? And, and offline, I think, is the more important part. Um, in that way uh, without, you know, 
facing the same problem of it's just engaging you because we want you here forever instead of a value-based approach. Um, Yeah. Well, there's definitely been a a shift in in the long tail social media networks where they've moved away from Facebook groups to setting up their own Slack servers. That's something I see a lot. So it's, it's, we have our own Slack server that has these sub channels and we own it. Mm -hmm. No one's trying to, it's not like you come to the Facebook group and then Facebook sucks you right out of there and and into like your uncle posting something crazy and then you're down your, there goes your, there goes your evening. So I've seen that. Also, you remember digital minimalism. I I documented all these different ways that people found out how to use Facebook groups without seeing anything else on Facebook. Yeah. It's a huge challenge. You have to use like the newsfeed eradicator plugin for Chrome or, or unfollow everyone or bookmark the groups page. So you can do it. You can, uh, you know, I call this the attention resistance in the book. There's a way to go into Facebook and get to a Facebook group and see what the people in the group are posting and not see anything else. But it takes a lot of effort. Definitely, definitely. I think there's a, a massive opportunity there as well, given that currently most of the attention is on these major platforms. And I guess that's the main appeal, like you were mentioning before. And to, I, I don't know, I guess from a marketing perspective, it, it seems like everyone's focused on social media. I, I'm particularly interested in marketing myself, uh, as well as psychology and, and just seeing the major push when I try and find things online, everything is social media is the way to go. That's where the attention is. Follow where the attention is. To subvert that model, in some sense, I think that it might be necessary to use those platforms and and make that case, just like you're saying, just like you do in the book, actually, to make the case for why we shouldn't be using it. But it's almost a David and Goliath scenario. It's a, you know, Joey and I, we start something, we say, hey, let's, you know, take down Facebook. Um, but their their backing is remarkable. So do you think these vigilantes of sorts can take down this this Goliath or are we just stuck? I don't know if taking it down should be the goal. I think okay. the goal should be thriving outside of its shadow. You know, right. it's like you have the you have the despotic king in this kingdom. And you got two options. You're like, okay, we're gonna get our friends together and we're gonna try to take down the king. Or you say we're going to go across the ocean and set up our own country and hopefully that country does better better and better and then eventually it's the united states and you know we in this metaphor maybe it's the american revolution or something but i think that's the way to think about it and i'm seeing that more people just do like i have a podcast i got a blog and you know often these long tail social media people they have some presence on the social media platforms maybe they they tweet things out or this or that but that's not their they don't that's not their core and they have these networks of maybe thousand people a thousand people pay 50 bucks a month and this group that they're a part of is just crucial to their thriving and happiness. And it's, it's nicely profitable for the people who run it. And it's great for the people who are in it. And they go and meet up in person and, and do whatever. And it's transformative to their lives. And, the, and it's a kingdom that exists outside of the borders of the, the despotic reign of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Yeah, I think increasing, like yeah, increasingly, I, I, I view Patreon as one of those platforms where especially for podcasters. I mean, Joey and I have been looking at that and it's very enticing because the largest creators on their platform, the the one who the ones who gross the most revenue are, are the podcasters who have a cult-like following of sorts from their podcast. And, you know, they just have extra little benefits. Be a part of our community. Let's generate yep. something off just that. I I will yep. note though with, with podcasting, I at least in my opinion, and I'd love to hear your two cents on this, that it's going to be almost the next social media platform of sorts, much more decentralized, I think. But distributing 
uh, or distribution platforms like Anchor, which is the one that we use, totally free, helps us set up a lot of distribution, uh, even payments. I think the the remarkable aspect of their proposition is they can democratize. And I mean, they have settings not, not to be a pitch or anything. We're not sponsored by them whatsoever. We just find them a good uh, product. You know, you could just call a friend, upload it immediately to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify or wherever it is. Um, and, you know, you could basically be converting what used to be pictures on Instagram into maybe, you know, a conversation with your grandmother on a, while you're on vacation um, and, you know, uploading it. And in some sense, it brings people really into the moment with you. I think that's what's mo- most beautiful about it. But yeah, um, yeah, I'd just love to hear your two cents about the democratization of podcasting, maybe whether or not you think it would be a next social media platform. Well, so we, there's, there's a cycle that uh, is often misunderstood. So this happened with blogging first. So here's a cycle. You have a, you have a legacy way of expressing yourself that has incredibly high barriers. So pre-blogging, you had a magazine and newspaper was like the way you could express yourself. So it was a very high barrier. Almost no one could express yourself. So the first step is you democratize it. So you have something like blogs come around. Now, like almost anyone can express themselves it, and, and it's, really, it's really easy to do. There's a next step to this cycle though that people often miss. So then people will get this, uh, this impression like with, blo- with the blogging revolution, like, oh great, this is gonna be the next big thing. And they turn around and like, man, like most of these blogs are terrible. And they'll treat that as like, oh, what a failed revolution. Look how stupid this blog is and this blog never took off and I started a blog and nothing ever happened from it because they were missing the next step, which is by democratizing it, you bring in a ton more voices, but then there is a sort of uh, emergent filtering that happens that the really good stuff can then rise and do really well. So the benefit you get from democratization is not that um, everyone is going to do really well, but that you sort of start from scratch let everyone jump into this pool and the new things shake up and, you know, you look around and you're surprised by, by who the big players are. So like some people did very, very well with blogs. Most blogs were stupid. Podcasting is being democratized by yeah, services like Anchor that makes it much easier, right? And now everyone can have an audio presence. Most podcasts are going to be terrible. And, and I think we're, going to, we're starting to see the typical backlash, which is like, oh, maybe this revolution was a failure because most podcasts don't succeed and most are terrible. Mm. But that's just part of the cycle. By letting everyone in, you're able to allow interesting new great things to arise. But in the end, only the great things are actually going to arise. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting dynamic. I think this was the luminary problem. They, they did not, they underestimated how hard it is to actually produce and hit content that is fantastic. This was like Alex, uh, uh, is it Bloomberg or Bloomstein from Gimlet? Bloomberg, um, yeah. Bloomberg, yeah. Um, his big secret to success is that he understood how difficult it was to produce listenable content. And so that's why Gimlet was so successful is that they were obsessive. It's like HBO, basically, you know, HBO got obsessive about, we have to have shows that are uh, appointment viewing. They're really hard to do. You got to have real experts, real talent. You got to spend real money or something like that. So I think that's where we are in podcasting. So we're, we're about to start hearing the backlash. Oh, what a stupid revolution. Because everyone and their sister has a podcast and none of them made money. They said the same thing about blogging. But you know what? Independent blogs ended up becoming an incredibly influential force. It's just that it's only going to be the top 0.1% that end up in the end having an impact. But you have to go through the democratization to, to build up something new. And then in terms of it being the new social media platform, and the one thing that gives me hope is part of what, I mean, like what Spotify wants to do, for example, is we own all the podcasts. We know everything about everyone who's using the podcast. 
So what can they do with that? Well, they can recommend you podcast to listen to, so keep you in their ecosystem, and they can target you with ads much more, much more accurately, and they can see if you listen to them. They get really good metrics on the ads. Get really good metrics on the ads, you could really charge a lot more. Some of that's not great, but it doesn't lead you to the same place that something like Twitter does because it's an asymmetric channel. So still, for the most part, it's me consuming content that I find interesting. And when you take out that weird dynamic where I'm pseudo-anonymously sort of in these battles and going back and forth and that sort of uh, palpitations as like, a, what's someone going to say to what I just said and all that sort of warping materials, I, I'm, I'm hoping the effect can't be as strong. There's something about the interactive nature of social media that allowed it to get a much stronger hold on people's brain stems than I think a a really good podcast network will never do. I mean, the, the biggest fear is it's just like Netflix. Yeah. Oh, I probably I'm listening to it too much because it's too good at like auto starting recommending podcasts. <laughs> I want to hear not a terrible fate, mm -hmm. you know, not a terrible fate. So I, I feel a little bit more optimistic about where that's going to end up. Yeah. So much like you, I, I have optimism for the future, especially since I think social media is definitely impacting our generation more than the older generations. And until our generation comes to term to the fact that this stuff isn't as great as it's uh, marketed to be, you know, we'll, we'll see some, some pretty radical change. But with that being said, Cal, we want to roll out the red carpet for you. We really appreciated you hopping the podcast, and we really want uh, our listeners to engage in your content as well and just see what, what's happening in your life. So uh, it, whatever you want to tell to the audience in terms of what's going on for you and where they can find you, that would be great. Well, I mean, it's, it's probably no surprise to hear after this conversation that I've never had a social media account. <laughs> so you're, you're not going to be able to engage with me on, on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, I do, my website's calnewport.com. So I, I love independent social internet things. So I've been blogging on there since 2007. As you mentioned, I have a new podcast, Deep Questions with Cal Newport, uh, that's available now on the major platforms. And you can find out about that, my books, my articles from my own website, on a server I own, <laughs> it's very old fashioned. Yeah, no one makes money off of it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an odd, it's an odd idea. There's literally a place, a building in Michigan where my server is on a rack mm -hmm. and, and it's, you know, my, it's an old fashioned model, but you know, I'm an old fashioned type of guy. So um, yeah, you're not gonna find me on social media, but you can certainly find me online and calnewport.com will get you there. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Professor Newport, for your time. This was a beautiful conversation and one we were really excited to have. As always, you can find all of the links to Cal's uh, website as well as his new podcast and, and our podcast and where to find us in the description and show notes of this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you when we see you. Till then, peace. Professor Newport, that was fantastic. <laughs>